If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. We read verses 1 through 15, and then we're also going to read chapter 4, verses 29 through 34. 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke. And he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. 
Well, before we uh, consider this passage together this morning, let's pray. Father, you are indeed a great God who is gracious and merciful and forgiving and compassionate. And you give us good gifts. And Lord, we pray that this morning you will help us to uh, see what we ought to ask for. Help us to ask for it uh, with boldness in Christ. And to not doubt that we will receive it from your hand. Lord, we ask that this morning you will uh, make the time that we celebrate around the Lord's table uh, meaningful. Uh, that you will allow us to remember our Lord as we ought to, that we will respond in ways that are appropriate uh, in word and thought and feeling and action. And Father, we would pray that you would uh, bless us richly for your name's sake. Uh, We ask that you would open your word to us, uh, because as your word, as the word of the living God, it deserves to be opened properly. Lord, we uh, do not so much deserve to be fed as you deserve to have a people who are nourished by your word and conform to it. And so, God, we pray not for our sake, but for your sake, uh, that you will open your word. Uh, Lord, I pray not for my sake, but for Christ's sake, that this morning your word will go forth with power. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, this is a relatively uh, familiar passage for probably uh, all of us. Uh, This time when Solomon very famously is given the opportunity, carte blanche, or given a blank check, he can ask for God for anything that he wants. And as you know, uh, because I'd read the passage, if you didn't know earlier, uh, he asks for a wise and discerning heart. However, Uh, Before this, there's a very interesting note in the very first verse, which says that he married uh, the daughter of Pharaoh. What this is showing you is that now Solomon has reached a place, Israel has reached a place, where they're actually getting some significance in the wider world. This is a political marriage, uh, as all of Solomon's many marriages will be. Uh, So he's making political alliances. The fact that Pharaoh cares enough about Israel to give his daughter to Solomon in marriage is showing that Israel is beginning to become somewhat important. The rest of this chapter, chapter 3 actually, uh, and then the first bit of chapter 4, will actually start dealing with the administration in Israel. So you get this list in chapter 4 of all these names and and people and roles, all the things that they're doing. Well, all you're being shown is that Israel is actually becoming a significant political uh, administrative reality. So Israel's growing. It's becoming more important, and Solomon is the leader. He's trying to follow the Lord, and he's doing so with relative success, even though there are a few things that he's still doing uh, which aren't appropriate. Later on in his life, of course, uh, he'll end up moving very, very far away uh, from God. It's one of the important things to recognize. The wisdom that he's given is administrative wisdom. It's wisdom to make good judicial and political decisions. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be faithful to God. In fact, when he builds all of these temples uh, for all of his wives' foreign gods, uh, we can see that in some ways he's acting like a fool. Sometimes it can be very difficult. How do you figure out how can Solomon be so wise and so foolish all at the same time? Well, the gift of wisdom that he's given is a gift of 
administrative judicial wisdom, which is why the very first instance of it, at the second half of chapter 3, is where he's able to determine whose child uh, the, the living child is, or who, who the mother of the living child is. It's a court case. Okay? So he'll govern Israel with justice, he'll be politically shrewd, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be faithful to God uh, throughout the remainder of his days. However, at this time, early on, Solomon recognizes that he's been given the throne of Israel, which is more importantly David's throne. And so as the son who's going to reign on David's throne, he realizes that he is over the covenant people of God. This is not politically significant as much as it is religiously significant. Israel, out of all the nations on the face of the earth, is the nation that God has chosen to enter into in a special covenant relationship. And so he recognizes that even though they're not the superpower of the day, politically or militarily or economically or anything like that, they are the religious center in the purposes and plans of God. So he realizes that he is not in a position to actually govern this people of God in this covenant framework properly. That's why when God appears to him in the dream, Solomon asks for a wise and discerning heart after he recognizes the greatness and the kindness and the compassion of God, which has allowed David to have a son on the throne. In verse 10, we're told the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so the Lord throws in everything else to boot. So all the things that you might be tempted to ask for, a long life, uh, health, wealth, if you're a king, uh, the defeat of your enemies, you know, security in the kingdom. God adds all of these things to Solomon because Solomon has very humbly recognized his need of God in the first instance and has asked for wisdom. Moreover, the Lord says, I will give you what you have not asked for. You'll have wealth and honor. There'll be no, you'll not have an equal among other kings. If, contingent, verse 14, God will appear to Solomon several times in 1 Kings, and every time he does and he gives a blessing, he always has a contingency with it. If you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did. The blessing of God here for Solomon is contingent on obedience and faithfulness. Now the result is found in the end, chapter 4, verses 29 through 34, where Solomon is given great wisdom by God. He's given great understanding by God. His wisdom surpasses the understanding of everyone else on the face of the earth. And he becomes a bit of a polymath. Uh, He has political wisdom, but he also has natural wisdom. He, He cares about plant life. From the cedar to the hyssop, and sort of in the hyssop that grows out of the wall. So in this context, it's sort of from the biggest to the smallest, everything in between. He's a naturalist. He understands nature. He's a poet. You know, he has proverbs and songs. He speaks about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. So he, he knows basically you know, as much as there is to know about everything, or at least it seems that way. It's not just philosophy. It's not just theology. Uh, he's someone who understands the natural world as well. And as a result, he's wiser than anyone. Kings of the earth send their servants to him you know, to hear the wisest person that there is. All of this, of course, is not natural to Solomon. All of this, uh, the text tells us, is a gift from God. If you ask God, he will make you wise. If you ask God, he will bless you 
with understanding greater than the understanding of the world. Solomon asks for wisdom. He receives wisdom in such an enormous measure that he's actually wiser than anyone else. Well, we know that. That's, that's the Sunday school run of things. right? It's, what, it's the, the narrative. It's what the text says happened. So how do we apply it? Uh, how do we actually take this? It's great for Solomon. Yeah, lovely that Solomon gets to be the wisest person on the face of the earth. Uh, but, but logically, only one person can be the wisest person on the face of the earth at any one time. Uh, so not all of us are going to be the wisest person on the face of the earth at any one time. I've already got that position. Uh, so, so what does this mean for you then, you know, who, who don't have this opportunity to be the wisest person on the face of the earth? Well, the application is pretty obvious. When you're enthroned as a king, ask for wisdom to get all the other stuff too, right? I mean, what do you do with this tax, really? Like, what are you supposed to do with it? Because, frankly, we want the wealth and the honor and and all of the rest. So do you you kind of come alongside of God and kind of say, well, I I know the right thing. We all know the Sunday school answers, right? So so we ask God for wisdom. We really secretly hope in our heart of hearts that what he's really going to do is give us a bunch of bucks too. You don't have a lot of decades to spend those dollars in. I mean, how do we do this? We're, we're, not, we're not enthroned. We're, we're not the king. Um, I don't know about you. I truly don't. Uh, I'm not making a statement about uh, charismatic phenomenon at all, so don't hear me saying that. Um, but when's the last time God appeared to you in a dream and, and offered you your choice of whatever you wanted? Well, when's the last time that, that happened to you? When's the last time there was a vision uh, of God in your room and God spoke to you directly? So, so again, it's nice that Solomon is enabled to ask for wisdom and he gets it, but in the sense of you want to say, well, so what? The context is so different from our lives in so many ways. We're not the king. We're not the covenant king. Psalm 2 does not apply to us. Uh, on the day that we are enthroned, the Lord adopts us as his son. That's not us. He's not appearing to us in dreams. He's not asking us to name whatever we want. So what do we do? Well, the one thing I think this text does, if you're being thoughtful, is it does force you to ask the question about where is wisdom found and how do you get it? What are proper sources for wisdom? Where do you go? If you want to be wise, where do you begin? Where do you look? Well, there are a few places in our context that we can cross off the list from the very beginning. Uh, Number one would be social media. If you want wisdom, that is not where you will find it. Uh, Unless, actually, because the book of Proverbs says this. The book of Proverbs teaches wisdom uh, ostensibly. That is, the, the, book of, the book of Proverbs teaches wisdom with ostensive definition. Uh, it, it points. So, so if you want to know what a piano is, uh, you can have a long explanation. Uh, you, know, you can write a paragraph that explains it. You can describe it to someone orally. Or if you happen to be in a room with a piano, you can say, it's that. And you point. That's ostensive definition. It's pointing to the object. In fact, because I've, I've actually never... Never done this. I've never been able to touch this before. That's what a piano sounds like. Like that. 
right? So you don't describe it. Actually, I can, I can play certain, but I won't. I don't. And so that's, that's, that's actually just saying, look, it's that thing. It, it does this. That's the sound. That's how you define it. Look if Proverbs does that. Hey, look. Do you see that person doing that thing? That person's a fool. That's what it says. Do you see how this person acts? That's a mark of wisdom. Just pointing at people. The fool shows people how stupid he is as he walks down the road. Book of Proverbs. Just go downtown and just stand for an hour just watch people and you will see fools. You will. You will. And I don't mean this, I don't mean this, I'm not joking. You will see foolish activity. You will see people wasting their lives. You just go and point. Do you see that person? Do you see that person? Do you see what they're doing? Do you see how they're talking? So social media may be a place to find wisdom through its negation. That is, through seeing lots of folly. And then you see what's not wise. You know, that can actually help you in some ways. Now listen, I also recognize, believe me, uh, I do recognize that social media is not all designed to uh, imbibe wisdom. You know, I recognize it's also designed to you know, show pictures of relatives, and, and that's fine. You know, I'm not saying that there's no use, utility for social media whatsoever, but if you're looking for wisdom, Twitter is not the place you're going to find it, right? But neither is the television. Probably the internet is not the place where you're going to find wisdom. Listening to all the pundits is not the place where you're going to find wisdom. Uh, we need to, if we're going to be wise, there's a very real sense in which most of us probably need to disengage more with mainstream media in our society. Well, what about our circle of friends? Do you find wisdom in your circle of friends? Well, it depends who your friends are. But one of the marks of the righteous person is that they don't congregate in the assembly of the wicked. Fools flock together. The righteous flock together. This natural attraction, this natural gravity, it's what takes place. Now, your, your friends may be wise. And if they are, then learning from them and listening from them can help make you wise too. But if your friends aren't wise... If their sources of wisdom are some of these other things, if their thinking is steeped in the thinking of the culture and society, then they are not going to have wisdom to share with you. You can't raise people to a level higher than the level you yourself occupy. Although one of the things that we're able to do is we're able to tear each other down quite easily. People are able to pull us down far easier than we can help people be raised up. And, and so just because they're your friends doesn't mean that they are wise. Now, we tend to collect uh, echo chamber members around us so, so that what we say, people disagree with, and then all we do is hear back, parroted or echoed back to us what we already think. And where you have a group of fools who are doing that, then folly just keeps getting bounded back and forth, but accepted as if it's actually truth and wisdom. So I need to be very, very careful about our peer groups. 
We, we need to be very careful about the people that we actually listen to. Because not everyone who surrounds us is someone who has wisdom. Just because someone is opinionated does not mean that they're right. Just because someone is extroverted and willing to share their opinion freely does not mean that they know what they're talking about. So we need to assess everything that's said. Well, what about nature? Is nature a place to go to learn wisdom? There are movements today in our society, in pockets, that would say, if you want to be wise, you need to sort of unplug from the urban experience and just go spend time reflecting in nature. That's where you'll find not only tranquility, but you'll find wisdom. Uh, this is sort of downstream of the transcendentalists and the romantics, sort of this, almost a, a pantheism of, of Coleridge and Wordsworth, uh, you, you will recall uh, from your reading in those areas, uh, and from poetry, you, 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 you do, you've, okay, you know this, you do. So, you, you, you know William Wordsworth, uh, the poet. And he and his buddy, Samuel Coleridge, were, were sort of, they, they believed that we were all embers of the divine fire. And wisdom was inside of us. Listen, you will find there are a million people, there are a million people today, all over the place, in our society, who believe that wisdom is intrinsic to them. And, and that they just need to sort of draw on their own resources. Doubt everything everyone tells you. Just, just use your own internal compass and, and you'll, you'll be able to be okay. As if somehow this depository of divine wisdom is just nestled inside of our hearts and we just need to sort of tune out the noise and draw it out. Well, there's antecedents to this. Uh, but one, you'll you recall, would be a Descartes. You know, who practice methodological doubt, so that you have this subjective turn. Doubt everything you can doubt. Everything you've been taught. All religion, all authority, throw it off. And in, a, in a terribly watered-down way, this is what's often taught uh, sort of in schools. Doubt a question authority. Don't believe it just because someone said it. Well, yes, yes, don't believe it just because someone said it. But recognize that person might know what they're talking about. Just because you disagree doesn't mean that person's wrong. Like, why do you disagree? This whole, this whole idea of methodological doubt, it's all inside. Start with what you can't doubt. This is where Descartes very famously gets to. Um, I think, therefore I am. The one thing I can't doubt is that I'm thinking. And then if I'm thinking, there must be a, a subject that's thinking. Which actually isn't, isn't even a logical conclusion. If there's, you could conclude that there is thought, but to have a unified subject thinking that that thought is, is something totally different. I think, therefore, I am. Well, maybe. Doubt everything. It's all inside. Just, just go out somewhere quiet and meditate. Sort of get in touch with, with, with the spirit. Get in touch with the universe. Just, just be one with things. And, and you'll really begin to learn you know, what's right. Just, just turn down the noise. Just, just, you're part of this, this whole system of spiritual reality. Just, just be quiet and meditate and think and empty your mind and, and let the wisdom kind of soak in. You will recall, even if you, even if you don't know the whole thing, 
You will recognize lines, I'm sure, from Wordsworth's poem, The Tables Turned. Uh, the, the first bit's like the bane of teachers, and the last line too. Uh, but this is sort of this, this uh, description of how you can just go out into nature and everything will, will make sense. Uh, you will recall, Wordsworth says, uh, Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. He's, you're going to get big, sitting there doing nothing. That's not part of the line. Just as an explanation. Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? The sun above the mountain's head, a freshening luster mellow. Through all the long green fields has spread his first sweet evening yellow. Books, tis a dull and endless strife. Come, hear the woodland linnet, how sweet his music on my life. There's more of wisdom in it. And hark how blithe the throstle sings. He too is no mean preacher. Come forth into the light of things. Let nature be your teacher. She has a world of ready wealth, our minds and hearts to bless. Spontaneous wisdom breathed by health. Truth breathed by cheerfulness. What impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can. Sweet is the lore that nature brings, our meddling intellects misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art, close up those barren leaves. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. I mean, it's lovely. But is it true? Do you just empty yourself of everything and go out in nature and listen to the birds sing and become wise? Do you go out into nature and find spontaneous wisdom breathed by health? It'd be nice if you did, but do you? Is, can one impulse from a vernal wood teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can? Heck of a vernal wood. I mean, like, like, is, really? You're going to learn more from, from sitting in that little patch of trees listening to the birds than you're going to learn from, from Aristotle? Well, maybe. Now listen. On the other hand, Wordsworth's not half wrong. There's an awful lot of philosophy that's garbage. There's an awful lot that sages have taught and continue to teach today which is positively ruinous. But if you're just going to empty yourself and go out into nature with an open heart that just watches and receives, your morality is going to be awfully interesting. The one thing notice he doesn't mention. He doesn't say, you know, go out and, and watch the carnivore rip apart its prey. Learn morality that way. He doesn't say that. Uh, sexual ethics would be interesting uh, if all you did was go and observe nature. 
right? I mean, so, so what you have here is you already have an interpretive moral grid at some level that is filtering your experience of the natural world. And that is okay. That's necessary. You can learn moral lessons by analogs in nature, and you ought to. Solomon himself will say, can go to the ant east sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. That is, go look at the ants and learn a work ethic. Jesus himself, consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the ground. And, and so you can learn lessons from the natural world, and you ought to. And spending time in nature can be health-giving and can be very helpful in terms of reflection. All of that's true. But it must be something which is secondary, not primary, in terms of acquisition of wisdom and knowledge. There has to be a framework in which it's all interpreted. And what's that framework going to be? Well, that framework, obviously is going to be not the creation, but the creator. See, the big problem with, yes, there are things to learn in nature even today, but the big problem with setting up nature as uh, the great be-all and end-all in terms of moral guidance is that the created world is fallen and cursed. That's the thing. And so you can't come to a fallen and cursed order and get proper morality out of it. It's just never going to happen. So there are still lessons there to be learned, but it is not authoritative. The creation that's fallen cannot be a substitute for the creator who is holy. And our judgment, because we are fallen, cannot be a substitute for the judgment of the Creator who knows everything, who is, who is omni-wise, and who is morally perfect. So what we need to do, as we sort of try to figure out where do we go for knowledge, knowledge and wisdom, is we end up exactly where Solomon was, but in a slightly different context. God's not appearing to us in a dream, uh, inviting us to ask for anything that we want, but he is the only source of wisdom that there is. But whatever you're going to learn from that vernal wood, if you learn it properly, is a gift from God anyway. He is the source of wisdom. And he invites us to come and be wise, just as he invited Solomon, with this difference. He doesn't appear to us in a dream. Rather, he instructs us very clearly in his word. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should do what? Ask God. Who does what? Gives generously to who? All. Without what? Without finding fault. Without, abra without upbraiding. Without saying, oh my goodness. Do you not know this yet? How long have you been my child? How long have you been living in this world? You still haven't learned this lesson? You know, you're coming to ask for wisdom? Forget it. Uh, times, things have moved on. You could have asked for wisdom 40 years ago, but today it's a little bit late. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give 
with a stingy hand. If any of you lacks wisdom, the guarantee that you do is if you don't think you do. Okay? If anyone lacks wisdom, that's all of us, he should, that is, moral obligation, he ought to, you should be asking God for it. Solomon stands as one special example of how God very generously blessed someone in a particular circumstance with wisdom. But James 1.5 is a general promise for all of us. If you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault. Next verse, though. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. For he who doubts is an unstable person, right? double-minded, tossed back and forth like the sea, like a wave of the sea. He should not think that he will receive anything from God. And so you need to believe and trust that God will bless you with wisdom. God wants his children to be wise. And this is the natural desire of a parent's heart for their children. They want their children to be wise. God wants his children to be wise. It's one of his priorities for us. And, and, and oh, for, you know, for you children and teens, and sometimes you know, your parents might be wrong, uh, unless you live in, in our house. Uh, your parents might be wrong sometimes, but the goal is they want you to be wise. They really, truly do want what's best for you. They want you to make good decisions. And believe it or not, sometimes a number of years of experience in life positions them to know a little bit more than you do because they've seen far more ostensive examples of both wisdom and folly. They know what it looks like. So you want to listen to them. You know, they're not infallible, but you want to listen. You recall, of course, uh, two, two little fun things from Mark Twain. You recall that uh, Mark Twain said that when he went off to college, uh, he was amazed at how little his father knew. And when he came back from college, he was amazed at how much his father had learned in those few short years. <laughs> in a different perspective, right? And then for those of you who, who have teenagers or who will be having teenagers uh, in a number of years from now, Mark Twain said that when uh, a boy turns 14, you, are to, you should stuff him into a barrel and nail the lid down and leave a hole through which you can pass him food. And when the child turns 16... You plug the hole. <laughs> so I don't know if that's good parenting advice. You have to be careful about wisdom and who knows. I don't know. That's just what he said. You have to be wise to, in order to determine if that's what you actually ought to do. Well, God has also uh, given us all the wisdom that we need, of course, in his word. And this is the other thing. It's, we, it's not like God, if he's going to give us wisdom, he doesn't just sort of give us this esoteric blessing of like, somehow, okay, now you're wise. No, you will become wise as I will teach you the meaning of my word, but you will not be wise apart from this. That is a guarantee. It's not possible. Because the wisdom of God is here. And so if you're not going to the source of God's wisdom, he can't give it to you. 
God isn't going to somehow create wisdom in you apart from his revealed wisdom. So what that means, and if you're going to be wise, there's two things you need to do. You need to ask God for wisdom and actually spend time listening to what he says. If you're not going to listen to what God has said, in some ways, that's really what this is. This isn't, this isn't a book to read. This is the word of God to listen to. If you're not going to listen to the word of God, then he's not going to make you wise. But if you come to the word asking for wisdom, he will make you wise through the basis of his revelation. That's what he will do. But if you neglect the word, you won't be wise. That's all there is to it. Ask God. Ask God for wisdom. Go to the word and you will grow wise. And one of the reasons that we have to go to Revelation, or God's special revelation in the Bible, is that God's wisdom does not look like the wisdom of the world. This table represents the wisdom of God, which is absolute, utter, inane folly in the estimation of the world. If you were going to reign over the world, would you send your incarnate son to die in agony and rejection and shame? It makes no sense. In the analysis of the world, the gospel makes no sense whatsoever. It is sheer outrageous folly. But as Paul says, even the foolishness of God is greater than man's wisdom. And so we need to learn to assess reality, again, not through the collective conscious, quote-unquote, wisdom of a fallen world, but we need to learn to assess reality through the wisdom of God, through what he reveals. Because it's through the cross that there is redemption. It's through the rejection of the Messiah that there is eternal life. It's through the incarnation, through that humility, uh, through that uh, humiliation that there's salvation. It's through death that you get life. It's through defeat that you get victory. All of these things which make no sense to the world at all. It's exactly what God tells us is true. And so who are you going to listen to? Are you going to assess things on the basis of the world? Or are you going to assess things on the basis of God? We're told that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all right here in Jesus. All of it. All the wisdom you need is in Christ. Well, may God help us uh, to grab a hold of him. The wisdom of God, uh, our Savior. Uh, we're going to celebrate communion. Remembering our Lord, the embodiment of wisdom. And so I'm going to ask the gentleman to come forward who are going to help to distribute these elements uh, this morning. Uh, for those of you who are not going to come up, uh, just you can spend a moment uh, in prayer. And then we'll celebrate communion together.